Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from my panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program and for caregivers coping with a loved one's metastatic prostate cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as other prostate cancer organizations, so Prostate Cancer Foundation, Prostate Net, us to Prostate Cancer Education and Support, so a number of other organizations as well. And really, um, it's because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. And we have over 200 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States. You come from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, as well as frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Iraq, Lithuania, and the United Kingdom, so really a bit of a global call as well. And we really uh, are appreciative of all of you being on the call, spending this next hour with us. Today's program is supported by Pfizer and a charitable contribution from Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies and of Johnson & Johnson and we thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. And Dr. Palos is both a, um, she's her own team. She's actually a doctor of public health. She's a social worker, MSW social worker, and an RN, a nurse. So she covers all those bases. And she's going to be addressing, um, and she, about, let me give you her titles first. She's clinical protocol administrator, administration manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Palos is going to be addressing taking on the role of caregiver, including being your own caregiver, the unique source stresses and rewards of caregiving, and long-distance caregivers. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Thank you, Carolyn, for the opportunity to be involved in this call. Today, we have an entire panel focusing on a topic that's significantly important, but at times often overlooked by providers, patients, and even the caregivers themselves. Today, Dr. Messner convened a team who recognized the need to talk openly and frankly about the trials and triumphs caregivers face during the cancer journey. Dr. Sloven will address the role of caregivers when they are part of a patient's health care team, as well as some of the medical issues related to um, uh, prostate cancer. Ms. Cusat is going to discuss a timely topic for this time of year, focusing on stress, particularly during holidays and special occasions. And most importantly, she will remind us about the importance of self-care and resiliency. And then lastly, Dr. Messner will talk about the essential services provided by cancer care. So cancer is said to be a family affair, no doubt about that. However, within our society, the definition of family is becoming a somewhat ambiguous concept. This uncertainty of what and who is a family has a direct impact on the act of caregiving and of being a caregiver. For example, over the last 20 years, the traditional family structure has changed with the increase of blended families, single-parent families, long-distance families, and even with a change in the definition of an extended versus a nuclear family. Interestingly, I can't say that word today, caregiving is also an ambiguous concept. So let's begin by talking a bit about the definition of caregiving and the issues associated with this role. What does this concept mean in the concept of cancer? 
how does one become a caregiver? How does one help someone when the caregiver and the patient may live far away from each other? And what types of trials and triumphs can be associated with being a caregiver? There is some confusion regarding this term because we often hear the term being uh, referred to healthcare providers who are paid caregivers. This is a group of its own and requires another teleconference. We're not going to focus on that group today. For today's call, we are referring to a caregiver as a person who provides physical, practical, emotional care, and at times financial support to cancer patients in the home or a healthcare setting. This type of care is referred to as informal caregiving and generally is uncompensated or unpaid work. To make sure there's no misunderstanding about the type of caregiver being discussed today, a caregiver here is going to refer to as an informal caregiver. Today we're going to focus on the 67 plus million people in the U United States who are informal caregivers. Interestingly, because of the societal trends mentioned earlier in our discussion, caregivers represent different groups. Caregivers are men, friends, children, adolescents, grandparents, parents, and of course women in all that group. In the context of care of cancer, caregiving is the act of assisting someone with a chronic disease that has a dynamic clinical trajectory that varies over time. For example, a person may be newly diagnosed, be receiving treatment, have no evidence of disease for years, and then at times may be diagnosed with a new or recurrent cancer. These stages are distinct to cancer and will impact the patients, the caregivers, and the family's physical, emotional, social, and financial health. Research studies indicate other unique characteristics that describe cancer caregivers. They include like caregivers typically spend more hours per, per day providing care. They provide more intense care over a shorter period of time and are often more likely to incur out-of-pocket expenses than do caregivers of individuals with other chronic illnesses. Because caregivers experience more vari variability in symptoms and side effects from different therapies than do individuals with other chronic illnesses, caregivers are called upon to monitor the patient's health status frequently and to use a variety of technical and psychosocial skills to promote the patient's health. But before I go any further, I'd like to take a moment for some individual reflection on how one becomes a caregiver. So those of you on this call today, I'm going to ask you to take a moment to answer the following questions to yourself. How many of you were invited or asked to become a caregiver? How many of you felt you had no choice? For example, one caregiver I spoke to was the daughter caring for her father. If I don't come, who will do what I do is what she referred to what she told me when I asked her about that. How many of you simply accept that you would be the caregiver and then just said, Oh, it's okay, it doesn't bother me? How many of you are quite successful in balancing all the roles, responsibilities and functions of being a caregiver? And lastly, if asked, how many of you would be able to share at least three positive aspects or rewards of being a caregiver? Being a caregiver to a loved one diagnosed with cancer is challenging, complex, and a multidimensional experience. In the past, research has focused uh, research on caregiving has focused more on the negative effects of being a caregiver. More recent studies, thank goodness, have focused more on the rewards or positive aspects of being a caregiver. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. So just remember, caregiver is a dynamic disease and has a dynamic trajectory. That has a significant impact on the caregiver's role, the level of knowledge, skills, and expertise needed to implement certain activities. 
the ability to communicate with different healthcare teams and professionals, and then different coping skills that um, are needed throughout the various transitions that take place in the care and clinical settings needed by a patient. As a result of these factors, both the patient and the caregiver often experience an increase in anxiety, stress, and other psychosocial effects. In addition, caregivers who are new to the act of caregiving may also lack the confidence, support, or education needed to perform many of the new responsibilities being placed upon them. Research shows that there are many unmet needs of caregivers that are not fully understood or examined. The confluence of, this bur- of these burdens can have a negative effect on the patient's health outcomes as well as the caregiver's health. Some caregivers have identified common rewards and stressors, and as I go through them, see if you can identify with any of them. And if you are experiencing these or other types of stressors or rewards not mentioned, please share those during our, cake, our uh, question and answer period. I'd like to begin with the rewards of being a caregiver. Studies conducted with caregivers and those that have been in some of my studies um, have found that there's four types of benefits. And I'm going to focus right now with uh, patients diagnosed, caregivers of patients diagnosed with prostate cancer. These uh, benefits have, um, that they've reported have said, um, the caregivers have said, well, I have found that I have a more accepting attitude of life. There's been positive changes in my self-view. There's changes in my interpersonal relationships. And I really feel a deeper sense of purpose in life. Those are the ones that folks have really talked to me the most about. Now, for example, in working with caregivers, many share their perspectives on being a caregiver. They said it taught them to adjust to things they could not change. Another said the experience led them to people who became their best friend. And another said it taught me to be more patient and to be a stronger person. Finding benefit when one finds stressful events is important because it can help individuals to integrate negative experiences into their world in a meaningful way. It also helps people to grow or expand their coping skills. Now let's briefly talk about the stressors associated with caregivers or with caregiving. Caregivers of patients diagnosed with cancer have been found to have higher rates of anxiety, sadness, or even depression. There is some evidence that there are three challenges associated with this role in both men and women. These include neglect of self, changes in the relationship with the person living with the cancer, and at this time they're not positive changes, they're negative changes, and the consequences on the caregiver's own physical and psychological health, such as um, having fatigue, sleep problems, and other uh, physical type of ailments. A stressor can come from seemingly simple things, such as, you know, I had one of our patients uh, share with me that, you know, she had to learn how to drive all over again because she hadn't really been the main driver in the family. It had been her husband who had t- who had that primary role, and now she was having to learn how to go on the freeways and to go across town and to use a car that she wasn't familiar with, and that was really giving her a lot of stress. And then another gentleman um, who was taking care of his father said he was learning the domestic responsibilities because neither one of them um, really had had a wife there or someone that came in to cook and help with those. So he was learning how to cook and clean and wash, and those were causing many stresses to this individual. These types of activities are outside the usual roles that people have, and learning the new roles can be a source of distress for the carer. There's no doubt that being a cancer caregiver puts one on a roller coaster of emotions, and that's normal. It's important to realize that when the stress becomes overwhelming, it's helpful to find ways to deal with that stress. 
Ms. Cusack will provide some tips on that area, and Dr. Messner will provide the resources. Trying to maintain so many roles can be challenging for a caregiver who may live with the patient or live close enough to see their loved one on a daily basis. But what happens when there is a large geographic distance between the patient and their caregiver? What happens if the family finds that they are in a long-distance caring situation? Are the roles the same? How can a caregiver care for a patient who lives in another city, state, or country? Is long-distance caregiving even possible? As one caregiver said to me, that can't be done. How can you be a caregiver if you don't live with the person you're supposed to be caring for? Well, let's begin with what is long-distance caregiving. Let me ask those of you on the call to close your eyes for a moment and picture a loved one or friend who may live in another part of your city, state, or country. What types of things come to your mind? Do you wonder what they're doing at that moment? Are they healthy or are new things happening in their lives? These are normal thoughts that enter our mind when we think of someone who lives far away from us. So being a long-distance caregiver can be challenging. There can be feelings of frustration or guilt or even thoughts of, I'm not doing enough. There may be fear and uncertainty about the changes in their loved one's physical and and mental health. The combination of these thoughts also can contribute to the stress and distress of long-distance caregiving. Now that you recognize those circumstances, what can we do to be proactive long-distance caregivers? I'd like to share some tips that may help you plan um, effectively, be proactive, and be prepared. First, it would be good to determine the roles of family members or friends who wish to be part of the team who may live close to your loved one. Find out who is willing to help and who can do what. Find a team. um, Call them your care partners. And remember, again, there's different interpretations of family. So this is now can become a new care family. Set up a safety net. Identify neighbors and friends or other relatives that can help you monitor your loved one's condition. Let them be your eyes and your ears. You can also keep a logbook where you record conversations with other caregivers, providers, and other important people like pharmacists or insurance and providers. Keep track of those that you speak to when and what the outcome was. Be sure and keep help, uh, helpful numbers handy. Make a list of everyone who is involved in the care of your loved one and give that list to as many different people on that care team as you can. And remember to keep copies for yourself nearby. When you do get a chance to visit, do your own assessment on the following areas. Look at the personal hygiene of your loved one, the level of activity and mobility, their nutritional needs, are there groceries in the pantry and the refrigerator, the condition of the home, is it clear and well-organized, and also look at the safety needs of the home, are there falling hazards, smoke detectors, secure locks on the doors, and does a trusted neighbor have a key to the house just in case something happens? So these are just some tips that I hope are helpful, not only to our long-distance caregivers, but to all of our caregivers on on this call. So my final message to share is just do the best you can, and whether you're a patient, caregiver, or provider, be kind to yourself. Determine what can realistically be done. Create a stable and realistic role in whichever role you're in, caregiver, patient, family member, or provider. Perhaps some of our listeners can share how they maintain their own treasured uh, um, triumphs and, and also their tribulations. And I want to thank you all for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. Carolyn, this concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Pavos. That was really extraordinary and a wonderful way to start this call off. And um, and the concept of being kind to yourself is really an important one for caregivers, absolutely, um, So and for everyone actually involved here. So thank you. 
Um, our next speaker is Dr. Susan Slovin. Dr. Slovin is attending physician, genitourinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel's Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and she's also a professor of medicine, Department of Medicine, Weill College of Cornell University. Dr. Slovin is going to be addressing what's new in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer, the important role of a caregiver with a healthcare team, and tips on working with the healthcare team to manage pain, neuropathy, and discomfort. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Slovin. Thank you, Carolyn, and good afternoon, everyone. And as usual, Carolyn always has me charged with talking about everything I possibly can about metastatic prostate cancer in a, in a very small period of time. I think it would be very prudent just to underscore one theme about everything I will chat about today, and that is prostate cancer is a multidisciplinary approach, meaning that multiple people are involved in a patient's care. It's one thing to have a medical oncologist, but even as medical oncologists, we rely on urologists, we rely on experts in pain service, for example, radiation oncologists, dermatologists, you name it. We try to make it a one-stop shopping, but at the end of the day, all we care about is that we're doing the right thing by our patients and assisting them with activities of daily living, maintaining their quality of life in addition to taking care of their disease. So what's new in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer? I could go on for an hour, but I'm only charged with a very short period of time, and I would like to focus in on really two areas. One is metastatic prostate cancer that is detected at the time of diagnosis. One of the things that's very important to recognize is when we're talking about metastatic disease, we're talking about disease that is no longer confined to the prostate. It is disease that we can see in lymph nodes or bone or in both of these organs in addition to other sites. And the standard of care for all patients who present with metastatic disease at diagnosis in the setting of an elevated PSA is hormonal therapy, otherwise known as androgen deprivation therapy or ADT. We use drugs for this, which is usually an injection, and it goes by a variety of different names, all of which serve the function to reduce the blood level of testosterone, which feeds the tumor. Now, in the old days, all we, which is really not that long ago, we gave androgen deprivation therapy and called it a day. We now have new preparations of androgen deprivation therapy that bypass the use sometimes of other medications, mainly drugs such as anti-androgens, and they go by a variety of different names from bicalutamide to flutamide to nilutamide, and all these drugs were usually given before people received injections to drop their serum level of testosterone, and they worked really by binding to the sites on the tumor cells and preventing the sudden surge or extra production of testosterone that temporarily occurred as a result of patients getting the injections. And remember that these injections work by telling the brain not to send out a signal to the gonads to make the male hormone testosterone. Now, what's happened is that we have other preparations where we don't really have to pre-medicate patients with these drugs. We just give the injection, and within 24 to 48 hours, the serum level of testosterone markedly diminishes to what we call castrate levels, and we don't have to wait two weeks for this to occur. So there's no right, there's no wrong. It's just that we now are fortunate to have these different preparations. Now, once that's accomplished, it's 
very helpful to have other drugs on board. And now the FDA has approved a variety of different drugs to be used with androgen deprivation therapy for people with newly diagnosed prostate cancer. Among these happens to be a drug called docetaxel, which is a chemotherapy drug, abiraterone, which is a type of signaling inhibitor that actually tries to control the cancer's growth, in addition to two new drugs that have been used and approved for later stage prostate cancer, but are now being used now earlier. One is called enzalutamide. The other one is called apalutamide. So when do we use each of these, or do we use each of these? Well, I always pick one. And a lot depends on how active the person is. Are there certain medications that the person is on that would uh, interact with any of these drugs? And do I really think that the patient has any limitations where I would choose one drug over the other. So for a patient to go on chemotherapy, it's not because I think the patient is in any way in danger. It's because the patient may have more symptoms or they're more tired or they're nauseous or there's something there where I really need to hit that drug, the, the cancer very hard. Abiraterone has become a very common drug in this situation based on clinical data, published trials, suggesting that it can be very beneficial to people, as can docetaxel. So it's really a personal decision based on your discussion with the patient and what you think that would be of benefit for the person early on. The drugs apalutamide, enzalutamide are also similar to but not identical to abiraterone, and they also work synergistically with androgen deprivation therapy. Again, published trials also indicate that these drugs work very well along with androgen deprivation therapy with the same outcomes. It's just that the profiles are very different. So we're still trying to work out as independent physicians, really, what's our policy? And we don't have policies. I think really what's dictating to us is how the patient's react to these drugs. Another area of interest is in the metastatic setting are patients who have not really had progressive disease. They may have failed first treatment with hormonal therapy, but all we see are rising PSAs and no evidence of disease on their skin. So we have patients who go on hormonal therapy in the setting of having been on drugs, their PSAs start to rise. We don't see anything on imaging. We've often termed them as M0, meaning metastatic, but no evidence of disease we can see on skin. And the new drugs that have been approved in this setting include enzalutamide, apalutamide, and darolutamide. They're all family members. They're all related. But here, too, it's been found to be of benefit in patients who just have rising PSAs having failed androgen deprivation therapy and maybe some other anti-androgens, and for which these drugs are beneficial. And here's the $1 million question, which would I use? Again, a lot depends on the side effect profile of the drug and how patients tolerate it. So we may find that uh, an older patient who is prone to falls may not benefit from using enzalutamide since it has been associated with falls. Patients who have thyroid issues may not want to go on apalutamide because of concerns <clears throat> Excuse me, regarding changes in their thyroid level. 
and darolutamide may be very reasonable for any of these people. But again, this is a discussion that is really based between you and your doctor, but they're there. The other thing that's very exciting these days is the world of genomic profiling, and what we're moving toward now is really profiling patients' cancer, either at the beginning of their disease or when the disease starts to spread and go to different areas, because quite frankly, the cancer has a very different way of, of behaving. There are changes in the cancer cells that uh, in some cases would show that the cancer could be uh, predisposed in a son or a daughter. However, this is few and far between, but we are finding patients who have genetic mutations such as the BRCA or BRCA gene for which using a class of drugs called PARP, P-A-R-P, inhibitors may be useful. We also have uh, genetic alterations called microsatellite high, and these are mutations uh, for which patients may respond to certain immunotherapies with checkpoint inhibitors. Is this something that should be done routinely? I would say that the world is moving very fast toward trying to profile people's cancers very early on to get a sense of how they will respond to drugs and whether or not these drugs really have a future. So there's a lot going on. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time to talk about it, perhaps in a question or two, but the reality is they're there. Now, how does this all tie in with everybody in caretaking, as uh, Dr. Palos just mentioned? Well, patients at diagnosis or later on all complain at some point of pain, and it's very important to distinguish between whether this is cancer-related pain or pain from arthritis or trauma. A lot of patients often forget that they were lifting a suitcase above their heads in, on the airplane, or they forget that they had been assisting moving furniture, or one of my patients forgot that he was lifting a gigantic air conditioner to his car and came in with pain. So it's really important to keep in mind that pain means different things to different people. People often com uh, confuse stiffness with pain. And the difference between stiffness and pain is that very often the stiffness is degenerative arthritis and it gets better after a hot shower, two Tylenol, and a little bit of walking. But it's very important to understand that if there is pain, we need to know about it from the moment you walk into our office, either as newly diagnosed or any time during the disease continuum because pain can can affect quality of life. It affects your desire to eat. It affects your ability to have normal activities and, and just participate in life. And so the sooner we know, the better. We do not immediately give narcotic pain medications. That's a fallacy. We start off with easy, easy things such as Tylenol or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as Aleve or Advil, and it's really not until much later with pain not responding to conventional therapies that we would even consider giving narcotic analgesics. Sometimes just an injection of steroids into a joint can actually make somebody feel better. Neuropathic pain or numbness tingling in the fingers and toes, well, we see that with chemotherapy, but of a, lot, a lot of our patients, particularly of the, uh, a more senior man, for example, over the age of 70, may say that, you know, I've, I've always had disc problems and I always feel numbness and tingling in my, in my toes. And a lot of times it's not even due to disease that is from cancer. It could be what we call benign disease from the, the discs. And so it's important to know, it's important to have MRIs done if you're not certain as a physician as to what's causing the pain. The point is there is part of a multidisciplinary 
sorry, multidisciplinary approach, we do have specialists who address this. And the sooner this comes to the doctor's attention, the better it is for the patient. The caregiver is often at variance with uh, the patients. And it's interesting because you talk to the patient and they give you one discussion about how their life is, and then you talk to the quote-unquote caregiver who says, oh, no, that's not what he does. He gets up five times a night, and he can't sleep. And it's trying to reconcile who is giving you the most accurate. And half the time, I'm, I'm almost like a divorce attorney. I'm trying to figure out who's telling me what and trying to be impartial. It's helpful to have the caretaker be a, a raconteur, if you will, to tell me what's going on. But at the same time, I have to listen to the patient, and ultimately, I have to make the final decision. And when I can't make a decision, the first thing I turn to is a scan or one of uh, an MRI or a bone scan or talking to one of my colleagues in the anesthesia pain service to take a look at previous scans and give me the, the input that might be helpful to discerning whether or not this is something that is concerning. There is no question that being a caregiver is challenging. Uh, there is often tension between the patient and the caregiver. The caregiver very often is at odds with the patient in terms of reporting things or saying too much. A lot of patients often feel that if they tell me what's really going on, that I might not want to treat them or I might not want to make recommendations for other treatments, and that couldn't be furthest from the truth. So the most important thing I would tell you in, in leaving my contribution today is that please, if you are a caregiver, please feel free to share with your doctor your perspective. It's always welcome. If you are a patient listening to this, please allow your partner or a significant other to just speak out because sometimes that person is speaking out for love and concern and not really to be in conflict with you. And Lord knows I've had to adjudicate many of these discussions in clinic. Lots of treatments out there, lots of things to do to improve quality of life and symptoms. So I would tell everybody that the future is still looking very good. Thank you very much. And Carolyn, back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slovin. That was really amazing how much you covered um, and how much information you've um, imparted to everybody. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Georgie Kusak. Ms. Kusak is an, an oncology nurse, and she is Director of Education and Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, Nursing Research and Translational Science, Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. And Ms. Kusak is going to be addressing the stresses on yourself, family, friends, partners, and loved ones, Coping with holidays, birthdays, and special occasions, managing family, friends, partners, and traditions, and lastly, self-care and stress management tips to promote caregiver resilience. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusak. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for the opportunity to be on the call today. I'd like to also take an opportunity to welcome all the participants who are on the call. It's my pleasure to participate in the conference. And as Dr. Mesner uh, discussed, we I'm going to be talking about stressors on yourself and your family and loved ones first. And so whenever you are serving as a caregiver, it can provide a certain amount of stress. As Guadalupe said, there may be shifts in roles where you may have to take on 
um, overall day-to-day -day challenges or activities that uh, you're not used to taking on, uh, additional tasks or tasks that other members of the family or other friends are not able to take on. And so, you know, there's a lot of different stressors that are put on you and your family members for that. And I think Guadalupe suggested, the very first suggestion that she gave about just kind of sitting down and even having like a family member, uh, family meeting to really discuss what are the resources out there and who can help is probably the initial step. And um, open communication is always the key to that. And so the Mayo Clinic has done a nice job identifying risk factors for caregiver stress. And they have identified things such as living with the person that you're caring for, um, there is a lot of social, can be a lot of isolation when you're caring for someone because you may not have a lot of other people around when you're doing that. Uh, financial difficulties, if you've had to cut back on work yourself or um, there's other financial difficulties in the families that can cause a lot of stress. Higher, the, uh, there's also studies out there that have shown that the higher number of hours that are spent on caregiving uh, the more stress it does put an added risk for um, other problems with that. Uh, lack, lack of coping skills or difficulty solving problems will cause an added layer of stress. And then lack of choice in being the caregiver. Again, as Guadalupe said, you know, if you didn't have the choice and you are the person that's kind of designated for that, that can add a, a, a lot of stress also. And so how do you identify some of the caregiver stress signals to let you know whether you may need to seek out additional support for that. Because, again, you may be so focused on your loved one that you don't realize that your own health or well-being may be starting to suffer from that. So if you're starting to feel overwhelmed or constantly worried, if you're feeling tired often, uh, getting too much sleep or not enough sleep, if you're starting to have problems with gaining or losing weight, uh, problems with being easily irritated or angry, if you're losing interest in activities that you used to enjoy, feeling sad, uh, having symptoms such as frequent headaches or bodily pain or other physical symptoms, or um, things like abusing alcohol or drugs, including prescription medications, these are all signs that um, you know that you may be having undue stress as a caregiver, and so that's when you want to really think about what can you do to be able to help yourself during this time. And we'll talk about some resiliency techniques, but some of the things you can do to help manage your stress, first thing is, is to accept help. And so, again, be prepared with a list of ways that other people can help you and then let them kind of choose what they want to be doing with that. Because if they make the choices themselves, they're more likely to participate in doing those uh, specific activities. If you um, have a family member or a friend that can run an errand or pick up some groceries or cook for you, please accept that help from them. You know, a lot of times people just want to be helpful, and but they don't know the best way to be helpful. So being able to provide them with some ways, I think, is um ultimately going to help everybody out across the board. Focus on what you, that you're able to be able to provide. Again, it's, sometimes you feel guilty and, um, you know, no person is a perfect caregiver. And so just know that you are doing the best that you can and make the best decisions that you can at that time. Set realistic goals. So, you know, break some of those larger tasks into smaller tasks 
so that they can be done and then prioritizing to really be able to establish kind of what gets done every day. But don't beat yourself up if things don't get accomplished that you would want to get accomplished in a particular day. Um, getting connected, again, finding caregiver resources in your community. There's lots of communities out there that have classes specific to particular um, diseases. In this case, it would be prostate cancer. And so just being able to educate yourself about prostate cancer, and I think Dr. Um, Dr. Sloven did a nice job giving you some of, you know, what's out there for prostate cancer now, so being able to have that. But also connecting yourself with search services such as transportation, meal delivery, housekeeping, any of those types of things that might be available, just to take a little bit of stress off of you. Uh, joining a support group. And support groups, you know, they you don't have to go out to a support group now. These days there's lots of support groups that are online that you can join um, that you can join up with, and so those uh, you know types of services are are out there. And again, I'll refer you back, and um, Dr. Mesner will go over at the end of the call a lot of the services that are provided. But just being able to um, join support groups like this group and other groups is is very helpful for that. Seeking social support again, stay connected with your family and friends, and anybody that can offer any kind of non-judgmental emotional support to you. Um, but and set aside time each week to be able to connect with those people. It's so difficult when you're busy taking care of a loved one to be able to take that time for yourself, but you really want to be able to do that. And then set your own personal health goals. Make sure that you establish for yourself a good sleep routine, find time to be physically active, you know, try to eat a healthy diet, drink lots of water, and those kinds of things. Um, some other services, again, some of the other community services that are out there, in-home respite care. There are home health care aides that can potentially come to your house to provide companionship or nursing services or both, um, depending on, you know, um, whether insurance covers some things or just depending on, you know, what other uh, support is out there for your for your loved one with that. There's also adult daycare um, centers and programs if uh, your loved one is able to travel to any of those places. Again, that might give you a little break to go out and do an activity by yourself. Um, there's also short-term nursing homes. When we think about the holidays and birthdays and special occasions, uh, some of the things that we tell you to do are to have family members visit maybe for shorter periods of time because you don't want your you don't want your loved one to get overly tired from all the activities and things like that. So if you limit the amount of time that people are there, that can help that. Uh, remember for yourself to take breaks during the holidays and special occasions. We already talked about doing things outside of the home. For your loved one, identifying different foods and likes and dislikes that they have um, can be helpful because then you can give that information to friends and family if they want to help um, you know, with the cooking or different things like that. You can also assign a friend to coordinate meals. So sometimes people, like I said, don't know what to do to help. And so if you assign them kind of, you know, doing particular tasks like that, it can help them to really feel good about that. And just to add, Guadalupe did a nice job talking about long-distance caregivers, but again, some of those things like helping to coordinate medical appointments or just being on the phone during medical appointments sometimes can offload your local caregiver so that they don't feel like they have to be the only person listening in on the conversations and different things like that. So just being able to 
coordinate some of those activities from afar is helpful also. When we talk about, um, again, managing expectations and preserving energy, you want to always be, um, you know, pick and choose gatherings for family members. And the NCI has eight tips to cope with cancer during the holidays. And uh, Carolyn will give you a list of websites at the end of the program. But I thought this website um, was good in terms of just thinking about uh, some of the things you can do in terms of, um, you know, if your tradition at Christmas time or Thanksgiving or whatever is dinner or gathering at your house, plan a potluck or suggest an alternative location for family and friends to go or even starting a new tradition. You know, it's okay to say no to old traditions or just, you know, do a different tradition for a for a particular year. Um in terms of those kinds of things, you know, you can think about gift cards or shopping online to, um, you know, bring in some of the groceries and um, and things like that. Probably the biggest thing I could tell you is, you know, again, don't blame yourself during the holidays or at any time if things, you know, sometimes things will seem out of control and just you need to realize for yourself that, that that's not your fault and be mindful that, um, you know, you do want to try to be positive. And there's a lot of, um, when we talk about resiliency, there's a lot in the literature about gratitude and, you know, again, being thankful for um, being thankful for things, you know, as they kind of come up and using that more positive aspect in terms of being able to um, just to help you get through some of these more difficult times. Um, if you're a, if spirituality is a part of your life, seeking out support from local churches or pastoral services or whatever um, way that you uh, participate in that. Um, Journaling is a great activity to express your feelings and, you know, if you take a little bit of time each day to write down how you're feeling, sometimes that helps you to deal with some of the stressors. And there's also some great um, smartphone apps for meditation and mindfulness. So starting your day with like 15 minutes of meditation or, and again, a lot of times you don't feel like you have that much time in the day to be able to do that. But if you can just take that first few minutes out of the day and just try to be, you know, just try to meditate. There's a variety of apps that are out there for that. There's also a lot of um, YouTube videos or CDs um, and things like that that you can that you can use for that. And when I talk about mindfulness, mindfulness is really looking at, you know, in different situations, sometimes it's it's much easier. Well, we tend to react versus just kind of try to pull ourselves back and kind of really put yourself in the moment and say, okay, I can choose to react to this or I can choose to say, okay, I'm doing the best that I can with the time that I have and everything, you know, that that um, I've been able to do in terms of really helping to support um, my family member. And then, again, another um, activity would be something like massage therapy. Uh, just anything you can do to to help yourself to relax is very helpful for that. And, you know, we, as Guadalupe said earlier, we would welcome you to share with us what really has worked for you in terms of being able to help you to cope through different situations. Sometimes it's best when we hear from the caregivers themselves and they can tell us strategies and tips that have worked for them. So feel free to put that on. And, um, uh, Carolyn, I'll turn it back to you now for any other additional questions. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Kuzak. That was really very comprehensive as well, and and so many resources. And 
uh, the concept of meditation apps is very helpful to everyone. Um, I'm going to say a few words about cancer care services, and then we're going to take questions. And so um, this is the time for you to think of questions that you might want our speakers to address, the things they may have addressed and covered. Um, so cancer care is a national organization, so we provide help to people throughout the United States. And those services include both practical and financial assistance and a co-payment assistance program. We also have a large staff of oncology social workers, and they offer a chance to talk with someone about your concerns, either on the telephone or online. Um, you can also post a question onto our website, and that's good for our international people on the call as well, because then we can assist with your questions and concerns as well. And we do offer counseling on the phone, and we do also uh, offer uh, support groups and um, online support groups as well. And we have online support groups on prostate cancer, on metastatic prostate cancer, for caregivers, um, for um, all different populations of people who have cancer. So we cover people of all different ages. Um, and um, in addition to that, we also have these education programs. We have a, a large number of publications as well, and we have a large number of podcasts. So these programs occur in real time, but they're recorded. And so you can always go back and listen to them again, um, or you can listen to topics we've done in the past that you might may not, not be offering right now. It's about 263 podcasts that you can access at the moment. So you can really um, go into our podcast section of the website, or you can listen to programs on telephone replay. So that being said, there's really quite a, a large number of services that you can access for free. Um, and so that's a, a snapshot of some of the programs we offer here at Cancer Care. Um, and now we're going to take questions. And so I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to ask um, also to um, – Norma will explain to you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Emil F. Your line is open. Thank you. This is for Dr. Sloven. I'm glad you're on today. I had advanced prostate cancer and a prostatectomy 11 years ago, and basically I'm my own caregiver. After 11 years, my only concern is getting up a number of times at night, especially in the winter, to urinate. I was on Vesicare and have been off of it for over two years. I'm in a catch-22 situation. If I don't drink enough liquids, I could have kidney problems. If I drink the recommended eight glasses of liquids a day, I am up multiple times at night. What other options do I have? Well, thanks, Danielle. It's a great question. Dr. Slovin, and that's probably a question. Uh, and, uh, unfortunately, and it's a great question, I'm not a urologist. I'm a medical oncologist, but uh, this is not uh, a stranger to me by any stretch of the imagination. One of the issues is taking this as uh, being very literal that I must drink eight glasses of water a day. So it doesn't have to be water. It could be soup. It could be coffee, tea, juices, soda. The other thing I would ask is do you drink after 7 o'clock at night? 
And that seems to be the biggest problem. People drink after 7 p.m. I mean, we, we tell people to diversify and, and drink things, but not to the point that you're peeing nonstop. If Vesicure doesn't work, there's Flomax, there's Mirbitric. I mean, there's a whole slew of other uh, medications to try before one gives up uh, the ghost. So I really would not be alarmed by this. I know it's annoying, but I would not be very concrete about the amount that you're drinking. We just want people to be well hydrated. But if you are it's disturbing your sleep, just just taper and just don't drink that much in the late afternoon. Drink enough and diversify it so you're getting some nutrients from it, whether you're drinking some soup or some juice, etc. But I would uh, I would not be overwhelmingly concerned. Usually people who have diabetes, for example, may have uh, more uh, increase in their urinary frequency, but I would talk to the urologist and ask him if he can change, he or she can change the medications around and see if there's something else to give you some relief and also just cut back a little bit on the fluid and don't drink after 7 p.m., especially coffee or tea. I will say one thing, forgive me for saying this, but uh, I had a patient who was about 89 years old, and he would come in with the same problem. I can't sleep at night. I'm urinating terribly. It's really a problem. And we went through everything diagnostically, and then he said to me, oh, well, I, I usually have two espressos before I go to bed. So that amount of caffeine is enough to, to do anybody in. So just an FYI. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thanks, Emil, for that question. Excellent question. I think we have another question in queue as well. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Again, thank you so much, Carolyn. It's an excellent seminar. Um, I am a registered nurse and a social, licensed social worker and also a 13-year breast cancer survivor. But I have a family member that also has peripheral neuropathy that he's been dealing with, and I also deal with it. My question is the doctor uh, spoke about the peripheral neuropathy. I take vitamin B6, but alpha-lipoic acid, I've heard there's been a lot more studies on it, the B6. I'm not sure about the B5 studies, but also I've been using acupuncture and past user of cold-level laser therapy and laser and the cold-light laser therapy. And I want to know what the studies are, if she knows any, and how it is helping other people with alpha-polic acid and, of course, acupuncture and the laser. Thank you. Well, I'm sometimes chief cook and bottle washer for every discipline. So I can tell you, number one, I'm not a urologist. Uh, or and I'm not a neurologist, which is really what we're talking about. It really depends on the source of the neuropathic pain. If it's chemotherapy-related, is it something that's coming as a result of a disc? Uh, I don't know very much about the alpha-lipoic. I know our physiatrists here have not used it. For a while, glutamine was extremely popular. Uh, the standard drugs that everybody uses these days is a drug called Lyrica, and the other one is called Neurontin. And we have patients who seem to do very well with these drugs because these drugs can be titrated upward, in other words, increase the dose to, to see how it works. I'm not an overwhelming fan of alternative uh, strategies. However, one of the limitations of acupuncture is that while it is very helpful, it's very temporary. And so we have people who do it and they say, well, uh, it helped me for 48 hours. That's the problem. It has to be done very frequently in order to uh, ameliorate. 
the best thing I can offer to you in terms of recommendations is really with a neurologist. Uh, as I said before, I'm not familiar with the literature, but I know that it's not something that pops up here in terms of one of the uh, recommendations for uh, neuropathy. And again, if it's due to diabetes, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people have neuropathy, and I think knowing the etiology of it first would help make recommendations as to what would be very reasonable options. I'm, I'm sorry I can't be any more... Uh, succinct uh, or comprehensive than that. Thank you. Excellent. So, thank you. Very helpful. Um, and so um, we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, and um, yeah, I'm gonna, this one also may start with you, Dr. Slovin, and then others may want to chime in as well. My whole family will be traveling on a cruise with my father who has metastatic prostate cancer. His doctor has cleared him to travel. Do you have any tips of what we should do to prepare him for the trip? He has pain from time to time, but his medication usually takes care of it. So you worry that his doctors won't be close by. So if you could answer this in a general way, because obviously all the details aren't here, but if you could, um, in any, if you wish to add anything mm -hmm. to, to a question, it would be helpful. This is a question that comes up all the time. You know, people, I have a patient who was just telling me before that he's going to Africa, and he's expressing to me all his trepidations, as is his wife. And then my first question is, why are you going? If you have really such trepidations, don't go. I mean, this is simple as that. Uh, for people who do go on a cruise, of course, there is a physician. And frankly, if the patient has a good activity level, and relatively good quality of life and the pain is well controlled, there really should be nothing that is uh, really unusual or requires additional care. I think the major problem that I have faced with people who go on cruises is running out of their medication. That's enough to make you crazy because there's no way I can fly it personally to Puerto Rico to, to bring it to you. So making sure you have the ample medication, making sure that you take all the medications is very important. The other thing that comes up quite a bit is the expectation that dad's going to go dancing and dad's running here, dad's running there. And one of the biggest issues, depending on the level of ambulation, is that sometimes people fall because they forget there's a little ledge in the doorway in the cruise cabins. Number one. And number two is people are exhausted. Uh, people who have walkers or canes, whatever, you know, they go on bus tours, whatever. But at the end of the day, they come back exhausted. And the next day, they really are to the point that they can't get out of bed. And then the family members say, oh, my goodness, what happens? Is it the cancer? So I think being very prudent and understanding that dad may not be able to do everything that you and your family are able to do must be taken into consideration. And therefore, if that person says, I don't want to go, or it's something that's going to exhaust the person so that the next day you're going to be having a litany of complaints, it's not worth to do it. And I would tell somebody to just stay on in the ship or just have a seat out uh, you know, on the, on the dock and go into some of the stores and just walk around. Awesome. Thank you. And do any of our other speakers want to add anything? Dr. Palos, do you want to add anything just about the go-to bag or sure. just be sure they have everything? Yes. Uh, just some, some real, I think they're practical types of things. Um, everything Dr. Slovin said definitely makes sense. Um, when you're packing all the meds, though, I would recommend maybe having one bag or two bags where you know that that's where the medications are. And no matter where, where you're going or if you're flying first and then getting on the ship, always keep those bags close to you and um, let folks know what those two bags are and how important they are. 
Also with the medications, it would be good if you could travel with them in their original containers because that has your information on it. And then uh, when you're going, you know, through different places or if anything comes up, you ha you have the container with the information that's very important there uh, on the labels. It would be good to get a list of medications uh, that you're on, and uh, that way, if anything again occurs, you have that list that's readily available. I would give it to more than one person. You can keep one for yourself, maybe keep one in your bag, and then also give one to a, a, a fellow traveler in the in the family. It would also be good to just kind of find out who is the healthcare team on the ship. What what is a healthcare team? Is it only a physician? Is it a physician and an advanced practice provider? Um, who is there? So that way, if anything pops up, you know, you, uh, your family and you will know who's available. And it may even do a little bit of exploring. What is their level of expertise? How comfortable would you and your family member feel? You know, with going to them and saying, "I have or I'm experiencing X Y Z." And then um, I like to be, uh, be very proactive. It would be helpful to maybe, when you're looking at your, your stops, look at the locations of where you're going to be at. If you're going to be in very isolated, going to visit isolated rural areas, it, you know that you can expect that there's probably not going to be healthcare facilities there. But if you're going to be stopping in little in towns or cities where um, along the coast where there's you know healthcare available, it would be good just to maybe identify a facility in each of those areas. Now that's not saying you're going to use any of this information, but at least you have the information, and that way you're not scrambling at the last minute trying to get all of that. The other thing, um, just to kind of also. Um, follow up on some of the things Dr. Slovin said, the safety issues are important. So one of the first things you want to do is just do an environmental assessment of the rooms. What's going on in the rooms? Where are the safety plugs? Where are any kind of electrical cords? Where are those changes in, in the levels? You know, am I going to take a step up? Am I going to take a step down? And kind of have those mop, mapped out. And that way you can also do an orientation then with your family member so to you know, remind them. And you necessarily don't necessarily need to be a patient to have that kind of orientation. Many of us just, you know, would be it would be helpful to kind of figure out what's around and do that environmental assessment. And on those physical symptoms, remember it may not just be the fatigue and the pain that comes up, but there's probably going to be some sleep disturbances coming up also. So you might want to t speak to your primary oncologist or your primary care provider about that. Maybe the first few days it's going to be very difficult for you to sleep. You may have an increase in the fatigue and the pain. So if you have something as a backup that may help you sleep those few first few nights, that will then help uh, deal with those increases in the fatigue and the pain. So again, those are just a couple of practical things, but they're things that I, they may sound like, oh, they're trivial, but I think they would really help someone who wants to enjoy any kind of cruise that they're going on. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dr. Pelos. And Ms. Kusick, do you want to add anything as well? Just a, a couple little things. Again, in, in addition to the meds, just um, just having listed like your allergies and maybe even kind of your medical history because if your family member is an adventurous type and he goes off with another family member who may not be the primary caregiver, they may need to have, you know, not without, you know, divulging their confidentiality or anything, but they may want to have a certain amount of information. The other thing is having a list of your um, of your MDs and that kind of stuff at home so that, you know, with numbers available so that people can call them if you were to end up having to go to the hospital or something like that. Um, 
And then, again, I think the comment that Dr. Slovin made about pacing yourself is probably the most important comment across the board. I've had lots of patients over the years that have gone on trips and stuff, and they really are totally exhausted when they get home. And so just trying to pace the activities throughout the day and every day and prioritizing just the activities. And, um, and again, if you don't feel like it, don't do it, you know, and, and those things. So I think it's comprehensive otherwise. Thank you. And I have a follow-up question for Dr. Cruz on, uh, for Dr. Uh, for Dr. Slovin on this one. In terms of the cruise, is there usually a physician on the ship, and does it make sense for someone to actually just introduce themselves to the physician in case anything does come up? You know, it's, it's you know, it's an excellent question, Carolyn. As you know, I like to cruise, and uh, most of the time, the two reasons that people who have or being treated for prostate cancer go to see the physician on board is number one fall. That's the big one, and number two, a little blood in the urine. So if this is something that occurs periodically for you, then particularly if you've had radiation, then certainly drinking a lot is very important. Uh, usually the doctor there might do a urine test and see if there's any bacteria and, and then give you a antibiotic if you need it. But those are the two common causes. I am all for introducing oneself for the physician, but quite frankly, unless you are in a position where you have to be monitored by a physician for you know a treatment or something, I would say just go and enjoy your life. There's absolutely no reason to be overly proactive here unless there's a critical medical issue uh, that must be dealt with in terms of your care, such as you know, you're on chemotherapy and you're getting a treatment or something. Otherwise, I'd say just go and enjoy yourself and be smart. That's all. Excellent. Well, this has been and don't, don't drink a whole heck of a lot unless you have to. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and you mean drink a lot of? Um... <laughs> We're talking about about alcohol. I always tell people yeah. they forget where they are, and uh, very often uh, alcohol does not mix with a lot of the pain medications that could also make people fall. So really, be prudent. And if you're going to a hot climate, especially remain well hydrated. People forget they're not drinking a lot. They get a little dizzy. Next thing you know, they're on the floor. And again, I reiterate, falls are the biggest reason that people have a miserable time on the cruise. It has nothing to do with the weather. I refuse to blame the weather for it. But people just do things they normally wouldn't do. They either have alcohol or they allow themselves to become so dehydrated they get dizzy and they collapse. And they do have steps and elevators in these uh, cruising ships? So can Very true, or? yes. So we have people who are in wheelchairs who are brought downstairs. The only thing one has to do is get off the gangway. And, of course, if gangway is a problem, there is a wheelchair, and the people on the cruise line will actually bring you down the gangway in a wheelchair. On the floors, there are elevators in multiple places on the cruise ship. So it's just like being in an apartment building. There's always access, and if you need a wheelchair, they will provide you. We've had people with motorized vehicles as well who uh, were, were doing the same thing. They were able to get back and forth. It really depends on the activity of the individual. But if you're going on a cruise and you know somebody has physical impediments, then renting a scooter is not an unreasonable option that you can take with you on the cruise. Well, I have to say this has been an extraordinary call. We've done this program before, but it really has had a great deal of energy. Both, I want to thank our speakers who've really been phenomenal. I want to thank all of our participants who asked us really great questions, both online and on the telephone as well. Um, and really, um, we could go on for quite some time, but I realized that we had said this was an hour program, so I'm I'm going to try to wrap it up at this point. But I um, I know we could go on for quite some time, actually, with more questions and just the whole discussion. Um, 
I, I, most importantly, we don't want any one of you to leave this call thinking that you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of a whole network of support, starting with your healthcare team, with your physician and healthcare team, but also with all the various organizations that are out there to offer you support, Cancer Care being one of them, but not the only organization out there. There are a lot of organizations. And when you get your evaluation form, um, which you'll probably get tomorrow, it'll have also all these resources that we mentioned during the call or that we've sent to you before. And they're all really terrific for you to um, to, to utilize. Um, and even when you're traveling, actually, to keep some of them with you, some of them have, you know, you can access them as well. So that it's just good to have... Um, more help than you think you might need. In this area, it's not a bad idea to have more resources than you think you might need at the moment because they're, they're all there for you. And um, there are some centers that actually have 24-hour call centers so that you can call any time of the day or night. You also want to find out when you can contact your your doctor's offices, who's on call, all that kind of thing is really important for you to have. Um, for those of you who still, I, I, of course, you want to go to your healthcare team, but many of you do like to go to credible websites or phone places that you can get information. So we always recommend um, the National Cancer Institute um, as a really uh, excellent spot to go to, in addition to the prostate cancer organizations that are the nonprofit organizations that have lots of information as well. Um, so their number is 1-800-422-6237. They also have a live chat feature on their website, uh, www.cancer.gov. And so you could either call them and they'll help you with your question, or you can go to their website and post your question and you'll get responses to it. It would be very, very helpful. Um, and now, in addition to that, those of you who want to pursue services from Cancer Care, either to join one of our support groups or to talk to one of our oncology social workers, be a part of our men's programs here that we have, um, you can simply contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And again, you'll get all of that information from us. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation on the program today, and we are entering a holiday period. Well, let me put it this way. It's a holiday period. Many people celebrate holidays at different times of the year, So, but the, the society that we're in seems to promote this being a very holiday time of year, and so to some extent that also brings its own particular challenges for each of you on the call, and to some extent um, but we do want to wish you um, a, a a pleasant time of year, let me put it that way. And um, and I want to thank you all for your being on the call today. And um, we have more programs coming up, so you'll be hearing about them. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the program. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.